Sunday edition of the call up. I'm Aram Layton. He's Jack McMullen. And basically, we'll, we'll, we'll try to give the lay of the land here because we have a lot of things to discuss. Well, first of all, we're going to discuss Paul Skeens versus Rhett Louder College World Series, which we also had a really electric game one of the College World Series. But we got to discuss what was arguably the most electric pitching matchup maybe ever. So we'll talk about those two, where they fit into the MLB draft and what you can expect there. Nick Gonzalez promoted, which is really cool because I got to see him on the Cape in 19. And then you just got to see him up close and personal for this whole season with the Pirates. Gavin Williams called up as well with the Guardians. That's extremely exciting. Really excited to kind of break that down and talk about how, you know, maybe he may have some implications if he pitches well on the Guardians rotation. And of course, to explain why we are posting an episode on Sunday and random times and whatever. I'm in London for the London series. I've been up till like two, three in the morning trying to watch these college games. I was not going to bed in that louder skein start, Jack. There was no way. Uh, but there was definitely one or two other things we're even supposed to hit on now as well that I forgot. I don't know if there was anything else. Yeah, there was a trade. Eduardo Escobar went to Dang. the Angels for Coleman Crow and Landon Marceau. So just an idea of like who those guys are. Uh, and Kate Horton continues to generate buzz. Yep. So I think we're going to hit Kate Horton too. Yeah, but I was like, <laughs> you texted me the next morning, I guess. And I saw you like almost tweeting and texting through this end of the louder skeins game. And I was like, what are you doing? Do you were like I took I took a couple hour nap. I was like, yeah. What time were you up till last night? Four. Yeah. Why? I was watching Louder and Skeens. Why? <laughs> so like, you know, there's a replay feature on ESPN, right? It's not. It's it, dude. I could not go to not sleep. I, I couldn't go to sleep knowing those two were actively throwing on the other side of the world somewhere. I, it was, it's funny because sometimes I can still shut it down. I'm like, all right, like let's, let's go to bed and we'll, we'll, we'll catch up in the morning. I can cl- even click through every single pitch and watch every single pitch. But there was something about these two men. It, it, there, there's something about a baseball game where both half innings, you're pumped. You know, mm-hmm. when, when it's just skeins, you're like, okay, I love watching him pitch in the top of the top of the innings. And then on the bottom half of the innings, well, I'm watching Cruz and hopefully it gets around to the, to the bats and LSU's lineup that are really fun to watch. Trey Morgan, Tommy white, whatever it may be. But what was so captivating about this start aside from the fact that it was, you know, a game to, to go to the college world series final was that when louder's throwing, I'm intrigued. I'm looking at a top 10 prospect, a top 10 pick uh, in this upcoming draft. When Skeens is throwing, I'm looking at the best prospect uh, pitching wise and and probably the number two overall pick in the draft. So there was just this level of intrigue that you don't often get. And honestly, I would say, because we were discussing this before we cooked record on this, there was something about, you know, I, I knew how loud, how good Louder was, but I don't know if I fully appreciated Louder to the degree that I did by watching him on that stage in that start, because it wasn't just what he did to a very good LSU lineup. It was what he did to a very good and balanced LSU lineup. He faced 25 batters. He faced 11 lefties. He faced 14 righties. And this is a guy that the, the whole arsenal, he, there's so many different ways that he can come after you. And and it was really impressive. And I, th- I felt like we could really appreciate that. Let, you want to start with Louder with Wake Forest? Because Paul Skeens, I think it's very well documented. We're going to talk about him, but with Louder, this guy might have made himself a little bit more money with with one start. And I always think that that's a little silly to to buy into. But I think in in this outing, if I'm the Cincinnati Reds looking at at pick number seven and, 
you know, I'm either taking Kyle Teal. This is what I would do if I'm the Reds at, at seven. Kyle Teal, Rhett Louder. Those are the two guys I think at the top of my board, unless somebody else falls to me. I'm looking at Rhett Louder and saying, okay, my window is to win by by next year or or the year after that. Obviously, they're looking at winning now too. And I'm thinking Louder can get there real quick. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think what we saw from Louder is very similar to a standout performance in the NCAA tournament. Um, yep. where a, a guy just NCAA men's basketball tournament, I, I should say. I say this like, technically I say is the NCAA tournament. Yeah, this is too, but like w- w- not I say the, the tournament. NCAA men's basketball tournament. Yeah. Um, I, I think that he had one of those draft elevators that is so awesome. Like we, we see guys that are, you know, like, hey, Brandon Miller is a consensus top five guy, but he shows out in the NCAA men's basketball tournament for a little bit and he becomes the two when the number two overall pick was set in stone for the last three years, apparently, and Scoot Henderson. Like, it just happens at the very last moment. And I think that's kind of what we saw from Louder. I think we could have seen it from Kyle Teal if Virginia wasn't two and out. Um, But what what was so impressive about Louder is he was given truly a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, a once-in-your-baseball-career opportunity. You have the chance to match the best pitching prospects since Steven Strasburg. Yeah. How do you fare? And there are so many guys that can't do it. There are so many guys that have a little blip in the radar and they lose that game to nothing. The fact that they went to the 11th scoreless is such a testament to Rhett Louder. From a stuff perspective, mid-90s heater, really, really good changeup. And I love the depth on the curveball. I love the separation between mid nineties and a like low eighties slider. I, I think that this guy's pitch mix can play very quickly. I think his arm slot is weird, much like mm-hmm. Sheehan. It's going to take some time for hitters to figure it out. Uh, and I thought that this was a, for lack of a better term, I thought this was as big of a dick on the table start as as we saw in college baseball this year. I, I think you you hit all of the important points there. It, it, it really was not only an impressive start from just a stuff standpoint, where I believe it was 13 swinging strikes, and it, it's a mixture of, of everything. I mean, he got several with the fastball, several with the slider, several with the changeup. It, it just it was really impressive to, to see him mix everything up and, and get whiffs. But how about the efficiency? Because this was an interesting yeah. wrinkle in it. Paul Skeens went eight innings, two hits, no runs, one walk, nine Ks. Rhett Louder went seven innings, three hits. Uh, you had two walks, six Ks, also no earned runs. But here's the important wrinkle. Louder and Wake Forest is a very forward-thinking, um, and not to say LSU isn't, but but we know Wake's kind of, and when it comes to college, somewhat pioneers with the pitching lab, which they talked about way too much during the, the series, but it, it is an important point um, with the way First that they approach. Now it's Wake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And with the way they approach pitching too, though, the, the amount of guys, it's not a coincidence how many dudes that were, you know, maybe not top 100 perfect game recruits that end up going to Wake Forest and becoming legitimate pitching prospects and getting drafted quite high. They also have a specific way that they go about things, which is we're not throwing our starting pitcher over 100 pitches. Rhett Louder has only thrown over 100 pitches once, 100 pitches twice this year and over 100 once, which is 105 at Pittsburgh. So Louder knew that he was going to need to be as efficient as possible, whereas Skeens, 
he knew that they were going to kind of ride him as, as far as he could go. And I think he ended up throwing at 120 something pitches, not taking anything away from Skeens because he's just bully ball overpower you. But Louder also had this balance of having to be as efficient as possible. And I think he could have almost got to, to, to eight innings there. He was so efficient through the first five or six innings. And then, you know, third time through, I think LSU started to spit on a couple more borderline pitches, started to foul off a couple more, and then they they were able to wear him down a bit. But before we get to Skeens, that was the number one thing for me was you had the efficiency of Louder while mixing in several different pitches. If you're an MLB team at this point, is there an arm that you're putting ahead of louder bat, you know, after Skeens? Basically, is there anyone else you could say is number two? That Dolander fell very flat in, in, the, in this post. I know what he has ability wise. I know what he has stuff wise. Yeah. But can you really justify anybody other than louder as the number two arm taken here? You you can just because of the arm talent with Dolander. I I think that each pitch in a vacuum can look like they're MLB ready for Dolander. But at the end of the day, Louder had a sub two in the ACC and Dolander had close to a five in the SEC this year. Yeah. And like results do matter in that regard. I notice all the best pitching prospects, all the top 10 picks as college arms had good ERA. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I, and then and people will that, point towards the Bryce Millers and those guys are, oh, college stats aren't the end all be all. Whatever. But Bryce Miller wasn't a top 10 pick. Correct. That's where I draw the line. If it's late first, early second, I agree. Look, look between the margins. Look at the data. But when you're look taking Reggie t- Crawford. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Love that pick. But when you're, ta- I agree with you. When you're taking an arm in the top 10 picks, he better dominate. <laughs> I want a dude that's going to be there fucking tomorrow. I yeah. want I want a rocker or a lighter. And obviously those two haven't worked out well at all. But like that's the kind of college arm that I want. I want a guy like Paul Skeens who I know like, hey, in a pinch, this guy can be my back end reliever if I'm making a wild card push in September. Yeah. Garrett Crochet, I thought was a good pick in that regard for the White Sox. If he went through the normal maturation process as a starting pitcher, I think Gary Crochet was going to be a consensus top 100 pitcher in base or prospect in baseball. Yeah, absolutely. but he was thrusted into a unique situation. I'm looking at a guy in the top 10 in Skeens, in Louder, in, in a Hurston Waldrop that like, if they do need to get up really quickly, they can, and they're not going to implode. Dolander had, you know, starts of somewhat implosion in college. And I don't think that's a mark of a top two pitcher in the class. I, I think Louder just proved that he is the clear cut two. But if there's any argument for anybody, it's the arm talent and the pitch arsenal of Dolander. That's fair. And I guess it could go into like signing bonuses and what all that looks like. But I'd feel really comfortable taking a louder because I think he checks the boxes of of what we we're talking about, too. Like, yeah, yeah, you were hoping rocker lighter would be that super, super safe guy. There's something about the pitchability of louder with the whole arsenal that I think is different than than even some of the more maybe exciting or higher upside pitching prospects we've seen. Like Rhett Louder just screams big league three to me. Um, yeah. Obviously there could be more than that. And I think there, there's definitely a chance for that, but I, I just feel really confident that this guy's going to be a big league three. And if you can get a big league three in a top 10 pick, you're doing that every day of the week. You, you know what everybody wants is Reed Detmers. Everybody yes. wants Detmers. And Detmers Correct. was the 10th overall pick. 
Yeah. I think that's exactly what, and and I think he's better than them. Like, I think he could be better than numbers. I think he's more talented. We'll see if it all kind of comes together, but I, I agree. I think you're looking for that Reed Detmers, which is exactly who we could promise you. The angels were looking for that fast track arm that they could bring up. Let's get to Skeens and let's see if we can discuss Skeens in a way that, you know, hasn't been discussed, you know, ad nauseum a little bit. And I, of course he's discussed ad nauseum because I, I don't know if there really is any nauseum with him because he's so fun. Um, again, eight innings of zero runs, two hits, nine Ks, one walk. It really felt like for LSU, the the plan was just ride the, your best arm and find a way to get a run eventually. And that's exactly what happened. Props to Thatcher Hurd, who came in, and he's going to be a good arm as well uh, in, in some capacity. Thatcher Hurd came in and was 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 effective. I know he didn't have the best year in the world, but he's got good stuff. Hurd went three innings of scoreless ball as well. But Paul Skeens, man, it, it was ridiculous to just see, one, how effortless the velocity is. He hit 100 by the ballpark radar gun 16 times, uh, which which is silly. He hit 101 as well. And really never got below 98 miles per hour on the fastball. I think he threw one fastball, 97 miles per hour in the third inning. Everything else. I mean, we're looking at the eighth inning over a hundred pitches in 98, 98, 98, 98. It's, it's pretty remarkable to see that. But then also you had that slider work in where it was just disgusting. And, and the craziest part was, There weren't a lot that got away from him. And I think that's what stood out to me because this isn't a finesse pitcher. This is a power pitcher by definition. He is a power pitcher, but he was ripping sliders with a good feel for it. And he threw some good changeups. Got a good changeup. I think he's got a really good changeup. And I think that's the separator. And like, this is, you know, this is my take that I debuted on the just baseball show and, and I'll bring it here. I don't see many immediate differences between Paul Skeens and Hunter Green right now because Hunter Green still has questions about the fastball shape, right? Like th- there are still some, you know, reddish flags. I'll call them pink flags that pop up about Hunter Green. Yes, it's 100, but is it is it dead zone? Like that that's the question about Skeens, right? Okay, yeah. it's 100. You have to see the data. Like it, it's just unknown with Skeens' fastball, but – the slider is unhittable at the college level and the changeup is better than greens and the command is there. Obviously the massive difference between Paul Skeens and Hunter green is Hunter green has had four or five years at the professional level to hone in on mastering his pitch ability, master mastering his, you know, command. Like he's not going to miss spots. Skeens has gotten away with missing spots all year long because he's facing college bats. Like the SEC is probably the equivalent to somewhere well, between low A and high A. Yeah, I would say. And, so, and probably a lot of the time low A. But dude, like if you're dominating low A with these numbers at 21 years old, I mean, you're a top 10 prospect in the game. Like if for some reason a GM did not bump this guy and, and he <laughs> spent, you know, and he spent 15 starts in low A and he was doing this, he's a top 10 prospect in baseball. So, yeah. That's my thing, man. Like, I just don't see any glaring differences between Skeens and Hunter Green. And I, I think you make a perfect point. Obviously, the most impressive thing about Skeens is the fastball and the average velocity, the number of times that he hits 100. But I think for me, 
the most impressive wrinkle to that most impressive pitch is the sustained velocity. We saw it in the regional. 123rd pitch of the game was 101, 102. I mean, like, he's got that left in the tank. Yeah. How the hell does a human being have that left in the tank? He's it's like that Air Force. Uh, you see the Air Force still in him, I feel like, on the mound where they, they talk about how hard of a worker he is and how much he can, like, you know, really push his body when he's when he's working out and practicing. And, and when he's on the mound, you know, we talk about pitch clock and, and guys that have you know adjusted like those Kings would not be impacted by that whatsoever. You, you could tell he's kind of put himself through the his own tests before he gets on the mound every single time. And that's why you get consistent performance from him. The craziest part, too, is you talk about like the numbers, if this was like low A adjacent or whatever you want to call it. Even if it was rookie ball, what he what he was doing is insane. He had double digit strikeouts for I think twelve of his seventeen starts. Most of them were were twelve, thirteen Ks. Ironically, that performance of eight shutout against Wake Forest was one of five starts this year where he didn't have ten Ks. That is just absurd. He's six six two fifty, but with little wasted weight. It's it's a strong six six two fifty. He moves really well. He was a two way player, a good hitter at Air Force, which I love to see from pitchers because that means usually these guys have a good feel for their body and and places that you know maybe some pitchers don't have as much balance, and it it just shows the athleticism. So this is a big ass dude who's athletic like linebacker type right this is not like d-line this is a linebacker like he moves way too well for a guy of his size that's why he's such a good pitching prospect it's not just the 100 and the nasty slider and the feel for the change it's the body it's the sustainability and the biggest thing is when i was out in omaha and i got to watch kumar rocker throw of course he was really really impressive but my biggest concern was we got to the fifth inning Got to the sixth inning, it was hot as hell. It was hot as hell, like when Skeens was throwing too. And you just saw the mechanics break down. You saw some non-competitive pitches and you saw him working hard. That's okay. He's a human being. But again, when we're talking about this generational pitching prospect, which some thought Rocker may be, that was one of those moments where I, I saw the I saw some human to him. Paul Skeens, there was no human to him in that entire start. There was no human to him in the first inning. There was no human in the eighth inning. It was just beyond me what we were seeing. And that's why I think all of the ridiculous hype around him, and there's a lot of variables and things go awry oftentimes. I hope they don't. But all of those things that have been thrown Paul Skeens' way are absolutely valid for that reason. There's also nothing to break down. Like you, mechanically, there is nothing to deteriorate over the course of a start on a hot day. What, mm-hmm. what does he do that like he needs to put max effort in? You, you mentioned it's low effort velo. I'm just looking at like point A to point B to point C to point to like release. Yeah, there, there's nothing happening there. It's so clean and minimalist. It's it's perfect. Like he is he's the perfect pitching prospect. Yeah. Just just about, which is really exciting. So we'll see. I mean, I I don't think anybody's ruling out a shakeup at one. I think it would be nuts watching Dylan Cruz in this series. I, I know he didn't go crazy offensively. He's been good. But some of the takes that this guy has, Dylan Cruz, I mean, it is it is ridiculous. This is a dude that's going to get to pro ball and probably run sub 20% chase rates immediately. With the speed, with the power, with the feel to hit, 
Dylan Cruz is a no-brainer, number one, just because I would never take the arm one when, it, when I have someone like Cruz. But if someone takes skeins, like, I get it. I get so, it. Yeah, so my worry, I guess, is – and it's not really even a worry because I think it would be a good pick for the Pirates. Like, they can't go wrong with either of the LSU guys. I think the way that the Pirates go wrong at 1-1 is getting Max Clark on yeah. the slotted. Yeah, that, I, that's, that I would scream that's Mickey Moniac to me. Yeah, I, I think that's just the objectively wrong decision. Um, yeah. If they take one of the two LSU guys, I don't think they're going wrong. I think that Cruz is a clear-cut one because he is a hitter, because he is so polished. Um, but, like, Skeens is really polished, too, yeah. man. The reason I could see Skeens happening is, okay, Keller looks good. Who else you got in this rotation moving forward? I would have said Rowanzi coming into this year, but Rowanzi Contreras has been relegated to the bullpen. Um, Jared Jones looks fucking awesome in Indianapolis. Quinn Priester just punched out 11 in six shutout innings last night. But again, like these are not tried and true big league guys. Like you don't know what Quinn Priester is going to look like at the major league level. You don't know what Jones or Solomito is, is going to look like at the big league level. You have yeah. no idea how Bubba Chandler is going to develop. So if you have the opportunity to add arguably the best or the second best pitching prospect in baseball as soon yeah. as he's drafted, they could jump on that opportunity. And, and that's the thing is he is the second he's drafted. I think the best pitching prospect in baseball. I, I I'm trying to yeah, think, I, I mean, Painter Yuri, Yuri's graduated. It would be him versus painter and, and dependent on painter's health. I would probably take painter over him. I think there's a whole conversation we'll probably have as we get closer to the draft, which is, and hopefully if I can get a little bit more data and, and information on the on the fastball shape, because there is a little bit of discussion about that is, you know, is it that high carry, high IVB fastball? Like, probably not. You can even tell by the way it moves. But the velocity is is so strong and he can use that at the bottom of the zone and get whiffs. He could probably go to a variation with a with a four seamer, a more true four seamer and get whiffs at the top. I'm sure that whoever drafts him, they'll they'll tweak it a little bit. But also, as we talked about with Walker Buehler and the Just Baseball Show, you don't want to mess around with the guys that are pretty complete pro, uh, like products and, and look really good that you took number one or two overall to be them. So maybe they don't. Maybe they see how this works. And at the end of the day, 98 to 101, even if it's a little bit flatter, I think his fastball is less of the straight arrow of Hunter Green and a little bit more of the drop. So we'll see, but I'm really interested to see how that translates. Regardless, there's one or two pitching prospects you take over Paul Skeens, and and that's about it, if that. And I, I think Paul Skeens as number one as a pitching prospect is valid as well and, and totally understandable. You want to get to Gavin Williams, who might be someone that would have like a a stake in that claim as well. But we're assuming he'd be, you know, graduated by the time that, you know, you have a Paul Skeens involved. Gavin Williams with the Guardians. Really good in AAA. Hit his little like blip in the radar by giving up two earned runs like for every start, basically in AAA. It's funny how that's a blip for him. Um, his big league debut was was all right. I mean, again, we we hold him to a very high standard. He, he pitches against the athletics. He goes five and two thirds, four earned runs, three walks, four Ks. Williams is 23. He'll be 24 at the, in the second half of the season. But this guy's really good. It, the fastball, the slider, we've talked about that. He's he's developing the curve as that third pitch. I think it's better than the changeup, but we'll see if he can find that changeup a little bit too. 
he's good enough with the fastball and slider to be a big league starter. I think the difference is the third pitch and fastball command to get him to that, you know, frontline type of dude. But I love that the Guardians called him up because let's figure out what we've got here if we're the Guardians while we decide the future of Shane Bieber, while we try to understand what the future of our rotation is. All of these things, I think Gavin Williams helps them win now, even if he's your fifth starter, and helps them find some more clarity beyond this deadline. Yeah. So, no, I quick caveat to Williams's like box score. Um, all four hits came in the third inning. And four, three of the four runs came on a three-run homer from Ryan Noda on, on a hung curveball. So that's a four-run third. He still threw into the sixth and did not surrender a base hit after that Noda home run, if I'm not mistaken. So, like, dude, we got to feel really good about that. And, and mm-hmm. Ryan Finkelstein on the Just Baseball Show brought up a great note. He said Bo, Bo Naylor was quoted after the game saying something like, um, you know, like that that was a moment that was a make or break moment. Like you you can fold there and say, oh, this was my welcome to the big leagues moment. And it turns into a bad start and you're lifted after two and a third, two and two thirds. But that's not the case. Like he buckled down after the homer and he threw into the sixth inning, got two outs in the sixth after a four run third inning. That, I think, is the most impressive aspect of his debut. Um, obviously, the, the stuff was good. I think it's really interesting when he was in AAA and I was just talking to the Columbus radio announcer, um, when he threw against Indy twice, his fastball was only outside to righty bats, only did not come into a righty bat a single time. And we were like, is that something that he does? And he's like, yeah, because it works. <laughs> but like he came in and challenged some big league hitters at, at points. Like it wasn't all the time. The The thing that jumps out to me about him is like, yes, the fastball is fantastic. Yes, the slider is fantastic. Mm. But I think this guy has some stones that, yeah. you know, yeah. not many pitchers have. And and I think that was kind of you talk about performances down the stretch that, you know, can can boost your draft stock. That's exactly what Gavin Williams did at ECU. He, he shoved down the stretch of the season, shoved into the postseason. And then all of a sudden his draft stock really shoots up. I, I do think that that was an example of him kind of showing the stones there. And you, you break down the exact inning you talk about, Jack, where he gives up the three run shot to, to Ryan Noda. Next batter, Seth Brown, strikes him out just right away, like bounces right back, strikes him out on five pitches. Next guy, J.J. Boudet, he walks him. He picks him off. You know, it's just like there's something about him. And then he gets, you know, Jace Peterson to, to I think, pop out in the fourth and, and goes rolling from there. It, there's a level of like, OK, even when this guy, if it, if it takes some time for him to be the best iteration of Gavin Williams, the one that, you know, we write about in our prospect write up of what everything can look like if it all clicks. That's fine. Let it take some time. But I think what to your point, what we're seeing from Gavin is, hey, even if there's a development process here, some players, some pitchers, when they're developing, there's no in between and, and they just can't compete at the big league level until they really have the whole arsenal or they really have the field to pitch. Gavin, I think, can be a big league four, five right now as he still hones in on his stuff. And and I think that's very important that you can get that experience at the big league level. You can continue to improve at the big league level while maybe still not even being close to what you can possibly be. 
That to me is just a good pitching prospect. I'd put Skeens in that same department. I'd put several other guys in that same boat. I'd put Painter there if he was healthy, where it's like even the unfinished Painter is going to get big league outs. Yuri Perez. I we finished Yuri had a one five. We saw the unfinished Yuri Perez with the first few starts. He just found the changeup. <laughs> and yeah. now he's just carving guys. So there's variance to that, you know, but it, I think Gavin Williams can get big league outs even without being a finished product. If he finds that change or curve, Jack, and and you mentioned only throwing the fastball in the outer half, if he can go in and out too, because I think that that'll really set up the slider, th- this guy's going to be a problem. And I think the Guardians know that. And I think they're looking at him as, you know, the future of the rotation uh, alongside hopefully a healthy McKenzie. It's kind of a changing of the guard here. And I'm going to use that, as, I guess, because I'm in London. It's in the back of my head. But it, th- th- there's a changing of the guard here of like Bieber out, Williams in, and some of the other young guys there, Bybee in. And I still feel good about the Guardians rotation. Uh, what did you think of uh, the Buckingham Palace soldiers with the funny hats? <laughs> and the hats are really funny, man. They, they I don't understand what they're protecting, really, because I just, like, nothing's happening. I think there, they're but... protecting honor, like yeah. honor of some sort. I don't know. What yeah, I, the is. whole spectacle is so fascinating to me. It was very busy. A lot of people there to see it, which made me want to leave. But it was it was very cool to see. Um, it was very cool. So yeah, we'll arm jump... handles crowds really well. I do not like crowds other unless I'm at a baseball game. That's literally the, which by the way, great crowd at the London game, really good crowd at the London game. It was, it was a lot of fun. I'm going to game two right after this. Last point on, on Gavin Williams. Like that's the mark of a frontline guy. If you can figure things out as a four or five, that's the mark of a one or a two, because Mm -hmm. once you are a finished product, you elevate. So yeah, I, I think that the guardians can probably look at Gavin Williams um mckenzie's dealing with this ucl sprain let's hope he comes back fully healthy so it's it's williams it's mckenzie it's tanner bybee it's logan allen who has thrown really well to start his big league or to start his big league career um and then after that you know you're dealing with some injuries and then you've got some proximity guys like triple a is thin right now joey cantillo just put together a good start but great start you know coming through the pipeline like coming through the pipeline and double and high a you you have that plethora of you know college arms that are continuing to tick up and I'm sure they'll take three more in this year's draft. So yeah. uh, real quick on the Friday episode, put this one together. Um, Cause Gavin looking like this is probably enough to incentivize the guardians to move Shane Bieber. If they don't feel like they're contenders Bieber to Baltimore for Westberg and Kerstad. Oh man, I think Orioles fans would be depressed. Uh, but but, but also it's like, all right, get over it, get over it. Like in, yeah, in like, you know, hey, some ball tell games. me where the tell me where the big league spot is for Kerstad right now. I know I would where try the big to, I would, spot is for I would, Westberg, but like it's not being there. I, I agree. I agree. I would try to make it Norby and Kerstad. I'd try. But let's assume that doesn't work. Yes, I, that is a fantastic deal for both sides. Kerstad, you could probably promote tomorrow and give him a go. And then Westberg, Westberg you can, you can tomorrow. definitely promote tomorrow. And he will give you an offensive upgrade over Ahmed Rosario immediately. Like immediately. I, I really do think that. And I, I know that we anybody that covers prospects tends to you know give them a little bit too much credit sometimes when they get up to the big leagues. And we always have to highlight like, hey, it's really hard to succeed in the big leagues. I think Jordan Westberg could run an 85 WRC plus with with without much issue. 
and better defense than Rosario. Rosario has been horrible defensively as well and better base running. Like he would be an upgrade immediately. Um, and, and they need a bat like Kerstad real bad. It's a steep price to pay for the O's, but if you can get like a verbal on an extension, I would absolutely do that. Last thing on Williams too, hit 98 five times in that start. Um, so Velo's there, topped out at 98.2. Nick Gonzalez real quick. hit 100. Yeah, you've seen him hit 100 too. I, it's there. He's got that in the tank. I think he was probably trying to manage himself a little bit in that one. Not Don't empty the tank in the first because all of those 98s, those came in the first. So I, I think there was more yeah. in there. He was probably trying to pace himself a little bit. And he held his Velo pretty much all start, uh, which was which was important to see. Nick Gonzalez makes his debut for the Pirates. This, to me, was the Pirates saying, like, hey, we need some new blood here because we are seeing the season slip away quite quickly. Nicky G, awesome dude, hard worker, really nice stretch of 20 games before uh, the, the promotion. But I think the theme here, and it's kind of been something you and I've talked about probably more off the air than on the air is what happened to the can't miss like 70 hit tool, Nick Gonzalez. And I think obviously I think that ship is, has sailed. There's power there, which is, which is the positive part. Like you can see that there's 20 home run power at second base. Uh, there's a, a much improved approach as chase rates continue to drop as the season has gone on. But I think it's also clear that this guy's just not going to be the 300 hitter that we thought he might be when he hit over 300 on the Cape, when he hit over 400 at New Mexico State, which yeah, obviously lower level of competition. But there's still a path to Nick Gonzalez being a good big league player and a productive second baseman who does a lot of the little things really well. And I kind of see it through the 25 game stretch that he had prior to his promotion where he hits 242, 392, 453 in AAA. It's an 844 OPS. He walks 17% of the time. He Ks 23% of the time. Three home runs, uh, 12 extra base hits. That's kind of what I see Nick Gonzalez being if it all works out at the highest level. Batting average is fringy. You know, it's 250, 260, maybe, maybe even down to 240. But he can be productive at, at those ranks because he's going to walk a ton running a 17% chase rate and he lifts. That's the thing. He hits the ball in the air. I think part of the steepness to his swing is why he he's whiffing so much at the top of the zone or sometimes pulling off a sliders. I do think it can get a little bit better, but I think that's kind of what we're looking at. You've seen him up close and personal through this stretch. What do you think a big league version of, of Nick Gonzalez is that hangs around? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I think it's a really good big league second baseman defensively. I think that this guy, like the the arm concerns on Gonzalez, I read about those. Yeah, I disagree. I like I I think this guy has a really strong arm. Like he survived at third base and survived it short when they were trying him at third and short, which was kind of interesting. I think he can play third base. Obviously, the Pirates don't need a third baseman for the next seven years. Um, He's going to be a really good defensive second baseman because he has range and he has a strong ass arm. He can make any throw to his back end. Like I see him falling into shallow center and making throws mm-hmm. um, offensively. I think it's exactly what you just laid out. I think it's high walk, low chase, but high in zone whiff, which is somewhat disappointing. Um, but I saw that 
I, I saw him almost remedy that in real time. Yeah. Like beginning of the year, front month of the year, it was like it was hard to watch points because it was fastball up, cut and a miss, fastball up, cut and a miss, slider, center cut, cut and a miss. Like it was, you know, he was he was kind of the king of the quick strikeout, like the three or four pitch strikeout. And once he started to like work at bats, you started to see some pop going the other way, start to really rear its head. This guy still has that excellent hitter in there. Mm -hmm. I think he is leaning on the power side and it works like it's worked at this point for him. Um, But, you know, we, we were dreaming on a guy that is like, yeah, can't miss hit tool. We were dreaming on a guy that can hit 300 with 20 pumps. Instead, he's probably transitioning into a 250 with 25 guy yeah. instead of a 300 with 20. Which it, I think you brought up an excellent point because you can you can see that adjustment. And, and honestly, props to him on that because one, you have to accept, okay, maybe I'm not the exact archetype that I thought I was going to be. And then two, you got to figure out how do I adjust myself to still be a productive big leaguer and an impactful prospect while being, you know, a, while acknowledging my weaknesses, I guess would be the best way to say it. Because again, through, through college, through the Cape, he hit everything. So there's no, oh, you know, what kind of hitter do I want to be? And and where do I need to hedge weaknesses? And, you know, do I need to worry about getting into my power and all those things? He didn't have to worry about anything. He just hit the ball every time. And sometimes it went over the wall and sometimes it went in the gap and sometimes it went up the middle. It didn't matter. It was always a hit. Yeah. You saw a guy here that said, okay, 75% zone contact. I better not chase at all. And yep. he doesn't. And I better not get cheated when I connect. And he hasn't been. He's been hitting the ball in the air a ton. His hands are ferocious. I, That's why I think so there's still bad. room for more, more hit tool. Like I just, there's gotta be an adjustment there. The hands are crazy. That's what everyone has always loved is how yeah. good those hands work. Yeah, I mean, you see it in real time, like the the speed of the swing, like it, it's hard to it's hard to blink. And like you're going to miss contact if you blink with Nick yeah. Gonzalez, like his hands are that fast. So I think, OK, like adjust on the fly, you know, go get that high pitch. When I think quick hands, I think contact hitters. Right. Yeah. Like that's just not it. He's got quick hands. It's resulting in a ton of juice for a guy that's five nine. So I, I don't know. Like, can you grab some of that hit tool back? I I thought we were going to have him in Indy for a bit longer and he would continue to work on that because honestly he was getting better and better by the yeah. month. And That's then the thing. They make this bump up. Yeah. That's the thing. You saw the end zone with continuously dropping, continuously dropping. And for a stretch of of almost 15 games, we had him under uh under 20% in zone whiff like for the first time. So they could take that as a, we're excited about him. We're going to push him up. I would have, I agree. I would have liked to have seen him kind of continue to hone in on this uh, because it looked like something clicked there. That's the one thing that's missing. And, and maybe it's hard for that to translate to the big leagues. And then that's, that's the hard thing. Now he's going to go kind of back to fight or flight a little bit. So it'll be interesting to follow, but I still believe that there's a world where this guy can can find a little bit more bat to ball. I do think he's going to be a good big leaguer, whether it takes some time or not. And I do think that that he's going to find a way just because of the way he carries himself, the way he works and the talent that he has. So excited for Nick Gonzalez. Congratulations to him. And and hopefully he can you know kind of carve a role here with the Pirates. I think it's very clear that they were hoping that he can inject some life into them. 
but I would have liked to have seen him kind of go up there in a, in a calmer setting um, and, and, and a, in a position where we have maybe 100, 150 plate appearances of him tangibly looking different on on the whiffs and stuff like that. But we'll see. I mean, I'm sure he's not complaining that he's up at the big league level. So uh, it, it's exciting and, and hopefully he can get a fair amount of opportunity there. Yep. Should we get to the Escobar trade and then yeah, wrap up with Horton? Is that it? Yep. Perfect. So Eduardo Escobar gets sent to the LA Angels. And what I think is interesting about this move to, to go get Coleman Crow and, and Landon Marcho. Did I say that right? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Marceau. Marceau. I love when LSU has players who have the AUX. The old Bayou name. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I feel like they have to recruit one or two of those guys a, a year. Like it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a necessity. No, they got a Braden Jobert and a Cade Beloso in the lineup right now. It's unbelievable. I love it. Gavin so, Dugas. Yeah. They get, so the Mets, they cover Eduardo Escobar's salary, which is, yeah, that's what Uncle Steve does. But they cover the salary to get two pitching prospects here. Because if if you don't cover Escobar's salary, you get nothing. You know, maybe you get a DSL flyer, but you're not getting anything good. They get Coleman Crow and they get Mar- Marshall. I I think it's an interesting return, given that you know it's a it's a player that you know shouldn't get you much. That they literally bought these prospects. Coleman Crow has been one of the more interesting case studies in minor league baseball because he's a Southern league guy. He was always a sneaky fastball kind of guy. Like data wise, it didn't jump off the page in terms of IVB, but he just got so many whiffs on the fastball at the top of the zone. And then this year he was one of the biggest gainers in IVB. Uh, He was one of the biggest gainers and just basically fastball shape and was highlighted in, in baseball America's piece. But I want to give him a little bit of credit because you could highlight the tax ball and say, oh, yeah, that's why he saw the big jump in induced vertical break. I was looking more into it after the trade. He adjusted his release point drastically. We talk about VAA, you know, vertical attack angle, vertical approach angle. He was like five, negative five before. Four is elite. He's got himself down to right around the low fours. So that's also going to help induce vertical break. And a tax ball is not going to do much of that. So I think it's the combination of that. I think Crow's a legit pitching prospect. He's been on the IL. Um, they haven't said what the injury is, but before that, he was carving up through Double A through his through his four starts. Hopefully, it's nothing serious. I assume it's not if the Mets are trading for him. Um, but twenty two years old, Crow has really I think solidified himself as a legitimate pitching prospect. Even if you want to highlight the tax balls, yeah. I mean, shame on me. Like I I can't. I don't know. I can't wait for mid-July when they come back from the All-Star break and they're not using this because I just immediately default to discounting guys in the Southern League. Like yes. Pat Montverde and the Marlins system, like I just discount anything he's doing because of tack baseball, which is really like shame on me, right? I shouldn't be doing that. Like some of these guys are actually like throwing really well. Look at Ben Brown. Like Ben Brown was throwing really well. He just happened to be using that tack baseball. Um, so like it's hard for me to buy four stars from Coleman Crow, but I can appreciate, you know, what you're saying with the other stuff. Um, like I'm not going to sit here and be like, yeah, bullshit. Like, nope, tack ball. Don't believe it. Like, let's see him do it elsewhere. But I, I do think that that was a good get for, I mean, a, a guy that was sunk, sunk weight on that Mets roster and, and in the Mets payroll. 
A hundred percent. And another thing to note with Crow is you have the adjusted release point. You have an uptick in fastball velocity by 1.3 miles per hour. And those four starts, maybe it would have fallen off a little bit as the season went on. So we're comparing to all of last year, but yeah. an uptick in velocity and the tack ball. So I think it was a culmination of things that allowed him to hold opponents to a 114 batting average through four starts. But ultimately, this is a guy that looked better. I, I understand the like, OK, well, what's he going to what's he going to do with another baseball? We'll find out. Um, but I, I think that this was a better version of him regardless. And it's a nice pickup for a Mets system that is razor thin when it comes to pitching. I mean, it's it's Mike Vassell, it's Blade Tidwell, and then they've had a couple Budo. guys step up and perform. Who, who'd you say? Jose Budo. Jose Budo. Um, of course, another injury setback to the guy that's supposed to be their best arm and you know isn't throwing this year. So it, it, it's it's an interesting spot. It, this is just a good opportunity to pick up a couple arms. We'll go to Marcho real quick. He's more of a depth arm to me. Um, six foot, buck 80, 23 years old. He's kind of low 90s, but he's thrown well-ish for the most part this year. Uh, he's been pretty solid. He's had a couple blow-up outings. I think this was just like, give us another arm with Coleman Crow. I really think Coleman Crow was the focus here. Um, I know Marcho comes with some draft intrigue in the past. There's room for him to be a good depth arm. I think Crow's a guy that you're hoping can find a way to being a big league starter. And that was the focus of the package. But Marcel, he's low 90s fastball, mixes in a cutter, uh, change up, sinker, slider. Like he's throwing the whole kitchen sink at you, curveball. He's got like six different pitches that he mixes in 10% of the time because he kind of has to. Um, but he's still a, a good arm to add into the fold here and would you know crack their top 30 prospects. But Coleman Crow was the piece here. One thing to note with uh, Marcho, Marceau, um, he his ground ball rate, like I immediately go to his ground ball rate because his case per nine is like well under nine. So I, I go here and I'm like, OK, what's going on? He might have been negatively hindered by this tacked ball because the ground ball rate went from 56 percent at high A last year to 45 percent this year. So I'm thinking maybe like a sinking fastball turns dead zony with that tack ball in the Southern Lake. Very possible. It could also affect the cutter, which the cutter is a pitch that, you know, is is, is largely a feel pitch. Um, you grip it. So a lot of guys grip it pretty similar to the fastball and kind of just let the arm action take care of it. If if it's sticking to your hand a little bit more, he might be ripping that with a little bit more horizontal instead of gyro or whatever it may be. I'd have to look into it, but that's an excellent point as a guy that was using a fastball that gets him ground balls and and a cutter that was supposed to get him weak contact and ground balls and a sinker that, you know, I, he has used less this year for maybe for a reason. Maybe the feel for that sinker hasn't been there the same. Like as the season has gone on, he has phased out the sinker more and more, which is bizarre given his success as a ground ball pitcher last year. So that is important to note. And again, like I'm just can't wait for presumably July 13th when they stop using these stupid balls and we can actually figure out, the numbers behind these guys and have the data be applicable. So that will be nice. Cade Horton, I can almost promise you we'll spend more time in high A and they may fast track him to double because I've heard, or excuse me, fast track him to triple because we've specifically heard 
Jed Hoyer say like, yeah, we wanted to get Ben Brown out of there. Like we don't really know what to do with, with, with the double a numbers right now. Again, they might not be using the ball. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Cade Horton's up there on July 14th, if they stopped using the ball on July 13th, this is, I think quickly the Cubs here have one of the best and most rapidly ascending pitching prospects in baseball right now. He's a top 10 pick under slot. A lot of people were scratching their heads because the college stats weren't as good. They gave him money out as closer to a later first round pick, but he finished the year really strong. And that's the important thing is if you watched his final five starts of the year and going into the postseason, this was a two-way guy that was like, whoa, he's becoming a pitcher right before our eyes. And he's continuing to become a pitcher right before our eyes. Dude, Horton is really fun. I mean, you look at the last four starts, a one ERA. He has struck out 46% of batters. He's walked 6% of batters. And he's picked up a ground ball rate of 55%. So he's getting ground balls. He's getting whiff. And he's not walking anybody. And he's not giving up many hits. 18 innings in that span, 31 Ks, four walks, one homer, 11 hits. Horton looks like a dude, man. He's 21. He no, I mean, like he, he plays, dude. Like 11 starts. He had, he had four starts in low A, sub three, 14 Ks per nine, two and a half walks per nine. If you combine all this stuff, so you've got a guy punching out five and a half or six guys per walk that you have. And the, the thing that is jumping out to me is like, hey, you know, I feel like each time I go on Twitter once a week, it's Cade Horton tops it, you know, 97, and he's got eight punches and five innings of one run ball. It's it's every single time. And the thing that I can appreciate about that is, you know, without even looking at the game logs, consistent. Like he, he's just got consistency now. And the thing that you see from the better pitching prospects in baseball is consistency. Yep. And that's what he is establishing at this point. Like there are top 100 arms that have blow up starts. There yeah. are because you see the ceiling and it's like, oh, that's tantalizing. But the best pitching prospects in baseball are the ones that like always put together the good start. We we had this conversation about best pitcher in baseball on the Just Baseball show. And you mentioned Framber Valdez should be in that conversation right now yeah. because it's so ridiculously consistent. He's mm-hmm. never going to have the bad start. That kind of screams Cade Horton at this point. And for a guy that was hitting in 2022. Yeah. Holy shit, dude. Yeah. And and there's yet you see the athleticism on the mound. And that's why did he pounds the strike zone? Consistency. You know what helps with consistency, Jack? Landing your four seamer for a strike 74% of the time and, and yeah. getting whiff on it. So it's east west. It's up to 98, nine, uh, touching like if you round up 99 and sits 95, 96, 97. I think it's he's more 96, 97 now. Spotting that thing, the slider spotting that thing. I mean, 66% strike rate on the slider, 22% swinging strike rate. That's a joke. And then he changed the grip on his changeup. And now it's more of that split grip and he's throwing it for a strike more of late. And that's kind of been a difference maker too. Then the curveball has been coming along. That's been interesting. And, and that gives him another look as well. And what's interesting is the slider and the curveball are kind of at the same velocity, but he's done a good job of separating them shape-wise. So now he's got legit four pitches that I think could, you know, the, the curveball and changeup still need some work in terms of consistency, but you can see them as whiff pitches, great action on them. And over the last five starts, he's thrown 
55 curveballs and 35 changeups, and both of which have graded out to have negative run values, both of which have picked up chase rates over 40% and swinging strike rates over 28%. So they've been nasty when they're around the zone. It's just consistency. This dude may have four viable pitches. He has two that are already plus, two more that could be above average or better. Horton has the goods to be one of the best pitching prospects in baseball very soon for the Cubs. What do you think his his max number of pitches thrown at his start is this year? They've been they've been careful with him. I'm gonna guess without cheating here. I'm gonna guess 75. 73. Spot on. Okay. So, so like he's consistently oh no, 75. 75 last start out. So you were you were exactly spot on. Oh, it was the last one. <laughs> um it was two starts ago. Two he starts ago. He threw 65 at home. He threw 75 pitches at Cedar Rapids in four innings and two run ball. Um, and like he had one bad start that was at Wisconsin on May 10th, three and two thirds, six earned. Aside from that, two or fewer in every other start. And that was his first high A start. I just pulled that up as you were talking about it. Yeah, and first high A start. Like so that's like, yeah, that was it. Um, yeah, that's pretty remarkable. They're not even fully stretching him out yet. And I'm interested to see like when they let him go. 80 90 pitches this guy he's been efficient he could go seven eight innings in some of these starts so i guess my last question is when do you think they let him go 80 or 90 pitches do you think it happens this year i think maybe by the end of the year yeah it's just interesting because every time you think they're building him up then it's back to 65 and it's like okay and and i guess maybe because it was you finish the inning there and you don't want to start a fresh one but they're, they've clearly got a plan. As a two-way guy, he didn't throw that many innings in college and was kind of a late bloomer in terms of solidifying himself as a pitching guy. I think they're going to be very careful with him all year. Oh, I do. Like this cat was playing third base last year. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I would preach patience. Um, Cubs fans probably don't want to hear that. But you can't fast track every guy if they're performing well. And I think that this is one of the few examples where – Hey, he's still going to be comfortably inside the top 100, I assume. Yeah, and I mean, like, if he if he ends the year in high A, he's comfortably inside the top 100, and he's a huge piece of what the Cubs are building. Oh, no doubt about that. And and just to add more context, did Cade Horton pitch one year in college? Yeah, <laughs> so like, that's it. 53 and two thirds innings. That's all he's thrown. So they've got to be careful. Like he's already two starts away from setting a new career high in innings, similar to Yuri Perez, they've got to manage that. And even with a guy playing out of his mind, striking out 14 per nine, you got to manage that. So it's, it's fun though. It's fun. And I'm excited. Bright days ahead for, for Cubs fans on the pitching side too. Uh, when you got him, Ben Brown coming up, Jordan Wicks looks good. Uh, DJ hers has kind of started to settle back in again, which is nice to see I, relatively speaking, but he was like development list lost for a little bit type of guy almost. So it's good to see him kind of finding things. Cub system looks really good, man. And it looks really strong. And uh, we're going to talk blue Jay system though. Finally, I will have that done for, for next week in our next episode. Anything else you want to hit on Jack? I don't think so. I think we're chilling, man. I'm, awesome. I'm going to continue to watch the King Caglione and, uh, what Waldrop should throw game two. 
Should be fun. Uh, we'll wrap up that College World Series conversation as well, especially with some of the draft guys and how they perform there. And uh, Kelly Doan, man, he's he's struggling right now. Swing is long and they're making him chase. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if he can adjust. He looks like an underclassman, which is, which is crazy to see because he was not that all year long. It's what happens when you get to this point of the year. So it's going to be really fun to see how this whole thing shakes out with the final game or two as we move forward here. But that'll do it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you had a nice weekend. And we will be back with multiple episodes going into next week for you here on the call up. Until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend and we'll talk prospects with you next week. 